Our New Testament reading is from Mark's Gospel and chapter 3, Mark chapter 3 and from verse 7. Found on page 838, uh, Mark 3 uh, from verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. You are the Son of God. About 40 years, Josh McDowell, the Christian apologist, he wrote that book which we've been mentioning over this communion season, Lord, Lunatic or Liar. And in this book, based on Rabbi Duncan's analysis, Josh McDowell argued that as we look at the claims of Jesus Christ, we have to come to one of these three conclusions. There is no other conclusion possible for us to come to. Jesus Christ either is a lunatic, that he believes he is the Son of God, equal with God. I remember a man on the streets of Perth, he claimed to be Jesus, and the local people considered him to have uh, mental troubles. Another conclusion that we could come to is that Jesus was lying, that he deliberately and evidently knew that he was not the Son of God, but that he sought for various reasons to deceive the people that he was. Or, Josh McDowell argues, the only other conclusion that we can come to is that Jesus is Lord, that he is who he claims to be, the very Son of God. And as we've been studying this third chapter of Mark's gospel, we see that Mark is collating opinions about Jesus Christ. It is a natural progression in the unfolding of his story about Jesus. Jesus has performed miracles and preached in Galilee in his second year of his public ministry. Jesus had has confrontations with the religious leaders of his time. And now Mark is causing us to stand back and look at this religious figure who claims to be the Son of God, and he collates three opinions about Jesus, put in inverted commas in our church pew Bibles. In verse 30, we, we thought last week of the scribes and Pharisees saying that Jesus is performing miracles by an unclean spirit, that he was lying about the source of his power, that it was not God's spirit, but an unclean spirit. We thought last week also of 
the claim by his family in verse 21 that he was out of his mind, that he is deluded, that he misunderstands who his true identity or what his true identity is. And we come today to this third opinion about Jesus Christ. In verse number 11, you are the Son of God. And that is the opinion that Mark wants us to come to and the opinion that we are to take with us as we come to communion today, as we break the bread, as we drink from the cup, we are to whisper to ourselves, you are the Son of God. Let's think of confessing Jesus accurately, first of all. You are the Son of God. What is meant in this statement? It doesn't mean that Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that the angels are called sons of God in Psalms and in the book of Job. They rejoiced when the foundations of the world were laid. They were created by God and so-called sons of God. Nor is it used in the sense that Christians, you and I, are sons of God by regeneration, by adoption. Nor is it used in the sense that Adam is called a son of God, created by God and in the likeness of God. But son of God is used here and to be used by us in the most elevated sense. That he is of the same nature as God. That he is equal with God in power and glory. That he has had no beginning. The Nicene Creed sets it out for us. The only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God. Light of light. Very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father. Son of God. Not in the sense that he was less than God as the Arians claimed. Not in the sense that he's a form of God as the Sabellians claimed. But that he was equal with God. Having the very nature of God yet distinct from God the Father. You are the Son of of God. This is a remarkable statement within Mark's gospel, isn't it? Because Mark's gospel is emphasizing that Jesus is the servant of God. In every sentence that we read in verses 7 to 11, they all begin with the word and. There is a rapidity There is a speed, there is a devotion, there is an alacrity to this person he's describing. He is busy, he is moving, he is God's servant. But he is also God's son. And throughout this gospel, there is this repeated announcement of the divine sonship of Jesus Christ. We heard it in chapter 1 of the heavens being torn asunder and God from heaven speaking, you are my son. 
confessing Jesus accurately. Louis XIV would have walked out in the avenues in his splendid gardens, gardens which he created in Versailles. And he would have walked out there even though he was losing his hair. And the wind would sweep up those avenues and and dishevel his clothes and his appearance. He didn't look like a king. But he was a king. He would wear no hat. He would wear no wig. He would wander around his gardens in this fashion. Here is God's servant. Busy. Humbled. Rejected. Threatened. But you are the son of God. And that's crucial for us to confess Jesus accurately. Even though that humble appearance was very evident and gracious, he is the Son of God. Our confession 8.2 puts it like this, the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. Not just a good man, not just a great man, but God man. You are the Son of God. It means He's omniscient and He's with us in our needs. It means He's omnipresent and He's around us in our struggles. It means He's omnipotent and He's able to carry us in our weakness. This is far more than just a a theological nicety or a doctrinal accuracy as we come to communion today, as we break the bread, as we see the wine poured out, the body broken, the blood shed, underpinning Our actions and our understanding is the divine nature of the one who gives his life to be the savior of the world. Secondly, confessing Jesus humbly in verse 11, they fell down before him and said, you are the son of God. There's a brilliant contrast which Mark locks into verses 10 and 11. Not apparent in the English, but but it's there in the Greek. He uses the same Greek word in verse 10 and then again in verse 11 to make this striking contrast between the actions of the crowds and this confession of the divine nature of Jesus. The actions of the crowd is put in the phrase, they fell Upon him. What an image this is of crowds. And, and Mark takes his time over this, doesn't he? he? He says great crowds twice. And he details the origin of these crowds. He, he looks into the east and they're from Transjordan and Idumea. 
He looks up to the the north from Tyre and Sidon. He looks down into the south to Judea. And from all those locations, right around Galilee, crowds had converged on, on Jesus and they're seeking to fall on him. The word he uses for their illnesses in verse 10 is scourges, the pain that's there. The agony of the illnesses that they're carrying is driving them to this location. And when they get there, they're trying to fall on him, to touch him. They recognize that he's a healer, that he has compassion and power to meet their needs and heal them physically. They try to fall on him. But those who confess his divinity, they fall before him. They have a greater understanding of his identity. He's more than a healer. He's more than a man of incredible compassion. You are the son of God. And in this moment it seems the, the, the veil of, of this world is, is pulled apart and we're, we're allowed to see into how things operate in the spirit world. Here are the demons in the presence of Jesus. And they fall down before him. You are the son of God. Kathy O'Neill, the journalist, has been talking uh, about her being mocked online. And she, in her work, has talked about different things she hasn't liked. And one of them was working in a library. Uh, And this uh, was pulled into online Twitter. And she was shamed online. And sometimes she would visit those moments and... People would joke and comment and ridicule her. And she said the most disconcerting element of the experience is the crowd that just watches the abuse. Here is the crowd here. And they have a, a superficial knowledge of Christ. They fall upon him. But those who really know who he is, they fall down before him. And this is how we are to confess Jesus, the Son of God, today. We are to confess him accurately, yes, but we are to confess him humbly. There is to be this impact, this correlation between our doctrinal position and the emotion of our heart. It's to affect us, to move us, to alter us in our understanding of ourself that it's Jesus who's the great one and not myself. They fell down before him. You are the son of God. Wasn't this Calvin's point, wasn't it, at the very beginning of his institutes when he talks about The essence of true wisdom consisting primarily, he says, in two things. A knowledge of God 
and a knowledge of ourselves. And we cannot have one without the other. To know God leads us on to know ourselves. To know ourselves leads us on to seek God and his mercy. The two are interconnected and here we have it before us. And it's been presented to us today as we come to communion. You are the son of God. And that leads me on to ask, well, who am I then? In the presence of the son of God. I'm an unworthy woman, an unworthy man, but one who believes in you for your grace. Confess him accurately. Confess him humbly. And thirdly, as we come to communion today, we confess Jesus sincerely. And this moves us on to verse 12. This unusual command of Christ. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. This has been a a problem to ourselves and to scholars as they've looked at this command of Jesus, not only here, but in other places. We came across it in chapter 1 with the leper. Jesus healed him. And our natural thought would be, well, let him go and tell everybody what Jesus has done for him. Again, and Chapter 9, when the disciples come down from the transfiguration, Jesus says, now, don't, don't tell anyone. And why, why does Jesus do this? That's the, the question that we're, we're left with. And it's not an easy question uh, to, to, to answer. Uh, one reason, uh, perhaps, that, that's suggested uh, about this is the strong nationalism within Galilee. And they were ready to get behind any new person who gave the hint of standing up to the Romans. And if this claim was broadcast and repeatedly published, the crowd would latch on to the wrong idea that here was one who could redeem them from the, the imposing governance of the Roman Empire. And Jesus didn't want the crowd to get the wrong end of the stick. Perhaps another reason is that the confession here, it's jumping the gun. Jesus is taking along his disciples gently. He's unfolding his true identity in measure. And this would be too much for them at this moment. And so he silences this confession at this time. But I think the best suggestion is that Jesus didn't want demons witnessing to his identity. Because Jesus wants a correlation between confession and character. For the demons to say, you are the son of God, it indicates that they're on the same team. They're telling his identity. It seems that they're on his side. They have alternative motives for making this confession. The scribes were saying, he is on the side of Beelzebul. The demons are saying a similar thing by this confession. How did they say this? Hendrickson thinks they said it snarlingly. You are the son of God. Jesus silences them. Because we are to confess Jesus sincerely. 
Sarah Planets, who was captured in Spain last week, one person on the 15 most wanted people, hiding away in a, a little village, been searched for for years, part of a one billion pound phone scandal, captured. And when they told her family, her 77-year-old mother said, well, at least I know she's safe and well. Really out of place statement. In other contexts, that statement would be great, but not in that context. And so it is here. Been said by the demons, Jesus silences their confession. As we come to communion today, our life is to correlate to our lip, our confession, to our character. We say, you are the Son of God, and our life should reflect that. In Mark's Gospel, Mark begins by saying, he is the Son of God. God the Father asserts he is the Son of God. The centurion claims he is the Son of God. You and I say he is the Son of God. And that is very different from the demon saying, you are the Son of God. When you say to your neighbor at an opportune time, well, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, they'll listen to you. Because they respect your character. Don't think that your friends will take you seriously. Talking about Jesus' divinity after five pints in the pub. We're to confess Christ accurately. We're to confess Christ humbly. We're to confess Christ sincerely. And the divine sonship of Christ has ever been part of the church confession, hasn't it? The Apostles' Creed. That early document so-called because it's in such proximity to the life and teaching of the apostles contains within it, in that second confession, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Lord. Today, We confess he is the Son of God. Warfield, in his wonderful essay and his shorter writings, pulls together this double evidence that we have the external evidence of divine sonship in the Scriptures, as in this instance, but we also have the internal evidence of divine sonship in our transformed hearts and lives. We come to communion today holding the word and our personal experience and we say, you are the son of God.